Hey, I'm Adam. And I'm Brian. Of Everyone Has a Podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 133, Out of Sight, Movie Review. I'm Chris McBrien, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. If you'd like to reach out and uh, contact us on Twitter, you'll find Derek at Amaron underscore DM, and you'll find me at C McBrien. McBrien is I-E-N, and popgoesyourworld.com is our website with all of our contact information. Derek, what's going on in pop culture in your world, my friend? Hey, Chris. Hey, Chris. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, I am... Uh, so. Between the last show and this show, we mm-hmm. had the Easter weekend. We did. Uh, of course, people couldn't go anywhere or do anything. So it was yet addition, an additional day to stay home and try to, <laughs> to be busy. Might as well just so, been a Tuesday for all we yeah, know. Exactly. Yep. Except it was, uh, you know, uh, the working at home stopped because I had Good Friday off. So I had an extra day of no responsibility and i got a chance to watch a whole bunch of stuff over the last week oh, so what, what did you watch well i want to tell you so please do i saw four classics i'm oh, calling nice. i mean capital c classics nice i like some where you're going these, with this some of these i know you've seen some mm-hmm. of these i think you've seen and one of them i don't think you've seen so i really want to take this opportunity just to to sing its praises and, and we maybe we do it on a future pod so i'm all ears the first one, I'm just going to do them in order from oldest to newest. Okay. I watched Duck Soup. Oh, that's what we talked about from our from political Brothers. movies. Yes. What did you think? I wasn't a big fan of it. Ah, okay. But it had a sequence that I didn't, you know, like a lot, we talked about this with other movies where g- good pop culture is borrowed and referenced and homaged and stolen in other things. Always. So in Duck Soup, they did the whole thing where there's a mirror, but the mirror has broken, and then the two guys are mimicking each other's movements to try and pretend the mirror's there. Mm -hmm. I've seen this done in a number of different movies and TV shows and cartoons. I had no idea this was like one of the first places it was ever done, and Mm -hmm. it was a great sequence, so I'm very glad I got a chance to see the original. Good. But the movie as a whole wasn't for me it's not one of their best and i mentioned that on the podcast like if you can watch monkey business or animal crackers oh my or night at the opera so so good so anyway that was the first one was duck soup okay Uh, that was one of four two of four was gandhi which i had never seen before 1982 epic richard attenborough directed it won eight oscars including best picture i know you don't necessarily think it was the best picture that year but i uh, uh, this movie I'd never seen it before. It blew me away. I thought it was amazing. Uh, I loved it. it. It was good. It was good. And um, and the actor that played the lead role escapes me right now. Uh, Sir Ben Kingsley. Mr. Ben Kingsley. Thank you. He was phenomenal in that role. Phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I just, as you know, I have a soft spot in my heart for 1982 for Tootsie. I think I it's just a phenomenal movie. It's like an actor's, you know, dream watching that movie. But Gandhi is good. No question about it. The scene when they all line up and they're being shot at by the British and finally the British just basically give up. It's just, 
oh, the whole movie is just a testament to tr- the triumph of the human will and nonviolent, you know, protesting. Oh, it's yeah. a good movie. Good movie, man. Yeah, it was a great movie. Yep. I was, it, it was, was good. It's one of those movies that I'm like, how have I never seen this before now? I was, it was almost four hours long and it had an intermission in the middle of it. And like, I was riveted. I, I couldn't, I had to fast forward through the intermission. I'm like, I don't want to stop. I want to know what happens next. Like I, I was so happy that I finally got a chance to see this movie and it was great. Uh, third, third of my four classics was again, another one we just talked about the killing fields from 1984, both the war in Vietnam and Cambodia. And you had uh, seen that previously. Yes. Yeah. I had seen it a few times before. I had not seen it recently, but after we spoke about it, I think on the last podcast or the one before that, uh, it, it was coming up on, again, we're getting all the free movie channels. So mm-hmm. it was, it was on the eighties channel. And I thought I'm just going to record this and watch it back a little later. Uh, just as good this time as it ever was. Again, the end of the movie, when they start playing imagine, you're just crying your eyes out. Ah! <laughs> you know, you know, the so thing that gets, I think the thing that gets me at the end of that movie, it isn't because some people have, have, have said, you know, it's it's a it's a sappy kind of ending and it's kind of contrived with imagine that's not the stuff that gets me that makes me cry at the end of that movie what makes me cry is when they put up the pictures of the real people yeah uh, they actually put a picture of Dith Prawn. They put a picture of Sidney Schomburg and it because then all of a sudden the whole movie floods in to my consciousness and I realize this actually happened to yeah. two real people my God, what kind of a world do we live in? And yep. that's what gets me every time. The fact that it's just, it's so real. It's just so such a visceral experience to watch that movie. That's a good one. Oh, man. It was great. And nice. I mean, whenever I watch a movie, I always go and read all the IMDb trivia after I've seen the movie just to see what, what other things did I miss or what other little details are interesting to know. And one of the comments that was made in the trivia was um, that a lot of people uh, criticized the movie, but they basically said, it's a love story. It's a love story between the two guys. Not romantic love, but the love for one's fellow man, the love for a friend. And and that's absolutely true. And at the end when he, he sees them and they hug and it's just like, oh, my God, you just your heart goes out to both of these guys. Uh, you know, that, that uh, you know, the, the things that they both have witnessed and lived through and the change that they've tried to initiate just oh my god oh and he's so, and he and Sydney oh I know Sydney says I'm sorry and Death Prawn says there's not there's nothing to apologize for nothing yeah yeah after he's been through all that nothing to apologize for <laughs> yeah it's so good oh yeah all right so my fourth classic now yes. newer movies it's hard to classify them as a classic because mm-hmm. really what makes a classic is time and public perception but I think even though this is a newer movie years from now. People will agree with me that it is a capital C classic. Mm -hmm. It's a 2014 Canadian film written and directed by a gentleman named Lowell Dean, and it's called Wolf Cop. (laughs) Now, I'm Canadian and I'm a movie buff. I don't think I've ever even heard of this, let alone the fact that it's a classic. But I I will say this before you go into it, is that I do believe, though, that what you're you're, you're saying is correct. You usually do need time for it to be a classic. But I think sometimes there's been experiences where I've watched something and said, that's instant. It's an instant classic. Sure. Uh, I and think, this is I one think, of them, I guess. Yeah. So I watched this last night with the wife. So Wolf let me cop? tell you, let me, Wolf yes. cop? I got to wait. So let me tell you how we found this movie. Okay, please. In the lineup, we saw coming up a movie called another Wolf cop brackets, Wolf cop two. And I'm like, so there's a sequel. What? <laughs> and then we saw the poster for this movie. And I'm like, Oh my God. So, 
Do you remember the movie from the 1980s starring Sylvester Stallone called Cobra? Of course I do. Yeah, it was like a bomb. But I remember yeah. that. Yep. Now, I remember it because one of my friends had the po- they had like all these movie posters in his room. And one of the posters he had was Cobra. And it's got Sylvester Stallone. It's Stallone right up front with the, with the shades that are like the mirrors. And the, yeah. gla- and yeah. the, the cigarette coming. And he's yeah. got this big gun with a laser sight on it. And the laser scope is like pointing off the side of the poster. So the poster for another Wolf Cop brackets, Wolf Cop 2, is the werewolf police officer in that exact pose with that exact gun. And it is like – as soon as I saw it, I am like, oh my god. This is the poster from Cobra. My wife's like, what are you talking about? So I pull up my phone. I show her. And she's like, oh, my God, that is fantastic. So then we're like, well, this is clearly a sequel. We should find the original. Sure enough, it was coming on one of these movie channels. And I'm like, we have to watch this. So we watched it last night. I'm dying to see how this becomes a classic. It is classified as a horror comedy. (laughs) Okay. And it's a small – okay, it's supposed to take place in in America, but it was shot in um, Saskatchewan, Canada. And it's a small town cop who becomes a werewolf and normally the werewolves rampage around. But for whatever reason, I won't ruin it. He can control the wolf power and he basically takes takes down the bad guys. You know, he he implements wolf justice and he gets like the wolf mobile. And I don't want to ruin too much of it. But let me tell you, capital C classic <laughs> duck suit, Gandhi, killing fields and wolf cop. My week has been complete. Look for Wolf Cop. I haven't watched the sequel yet. My it's goodness. on my radar for this week. We'll talk about it on the next show. Wolf Cop from 2014. You won't be disappointed. Oh. Maybe we need to talk about it on a future pod, but I, 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 I can't say I can't say any more about it. It is just it blew me away. I will definitely look it up and see. Like I said, I never even heard of it. Um, on a previous podcast for myself, I had mentioned that. I have young kids, as you know, and I always was able to make them laugh. And my kids used to always call me the goat, which was, you know, the greatest of all time. Oh, yeah, right. We talked about this last yeah, week. Just yeah, just last week, you know, and how now I apparently have gone into the dad joke era of my life because now my kids just say, oh, your jokes are no good. You're cringy. You're not the goat. You're the coat, you know? Right. Right. I'm yeah. the cringiest of all time. And that is what they call me. So, you know what? I decided th- this isn't going to change. And for any parents that are listening, you know, once you get into these kind of zones as a parent, you can't get out. So I'm apparently the coat. So I decided I would, instead of fight it, I will embrace my inner coat and just accept the fact that I've entered that cringy dad joke phase of my life right now. Okay. And so what's more, I decided that I will share this with you, my friend, in a new segment that I'm going to call Dad Joke of the Week. Oh, geez. Okay. Okay, so here it is. Are you ready for my Dad Joke of the Week? Uh, Yes. Yes, I am. Why didn't Han Solo like eating Wookiee meat? I have no idea. Because it was chewy. Oh, oh, man. That's that's pretty bad, Chris. I'm sorry. (laughs) Left, right, left. Black guys, help the white guys. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna. Death before disco. Disco, yeah. Should have called him the dork. I'm better than you. I can do whatever I want. It's like going into Wisconsin. You just broke my force field. Yeah, well, I got the s*** kicked out of me in Wisconsin once. Forget it. Yeah, you win. Son of Okay, so this week, uh, the movie was over to you, 
It was Out of Sight from 1998. You had me go watch. I had never, not only had I never seen it, I got to be honest with you. I never really even heard of it, you know, go figure because it came out after 1989. And that's when I stopped watching movies, as we all know. Uh, So before I kind of get into this with my take, I usually like to throw things over to you since it was your film. So why don't you take us away a little bit and just explain why, because I mean, you get the opportunity to nominate a film. You could have nominated any film. You know, you usually do millennial stuff, which is great. So why, why this film? Why from 98? Why out of sight? Just take me away a little bit without getting too much in it, because we'll do a deep dive into the movie together. Sure. Absolutely. But why this movie? Why do you want me to see it? Go ahead. Okay. So let me start by saying I like this movie a lot. Uh, I hadn't seen it in a while, and when I rewatched it this week, um, I certainly uh, enjoyed it, but there were some parts of the movie I was like, mm, this is a little slower than I remember. But again, like anything else that you like, you're going to remember it with some rose-colored glasses, and you're you're going to remember the, the parts that you like as being really good, which I felt they were. So with this movie, for those who maybe haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a while, uh, at its heart, it's a movie about George Clooney's character, Jack Foley, who is uh, you know the world's most lovable bank robber who never uses a gun. He's just charming. Uh, Basically, he's the Danny Ocean character from Ocean's Eleven before Ocean's Eleven. Like, that's the same kind of persona he has where he's just charming and and, uh, charismatic. And it's this story about this bank robber and he's trying to do one last score after he gets out of prison. And of course, um, the other side of this story is about Karen Sisko, character played by Jennifer Lopez, who's a U.S. Marshal, no-nonsense U.S. Marshal, who happens to uh, find herself intertwined with this story, uh, which ha- begins with George Clooney's character breaking out of prison to do this one last score. And she happens to be there when he breaks out of prison. And it's the relationship, uh, the love story, if you will, between George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez's characters, despite the fact that um, you know, you've got a criminal and a law enforcement officer. It's very clear they can never have any sort of life together or relationship with each other, but they are continue to find themselves in circumstances where they are sharing time and getting to know each other and actually really, really falling for each other despite all of these odds against them ever having anything of substance. And it's a character study of these two, two um, well, it's a character study of these two characters. And the movie is surrounded with this cast of remarkable actors, a lot of great character actors playing these great parts. You've got Ving Rhames, you've got Don Cheadle, you've got Catherine Keener, Dennis Farina, you've got uh, Albert Brooks, Louise Guzman, like a lot of people whose names you should recognize, but if you don't, as soon as you see them on screen, you're like, oh my God, yeah, that guy. It's got cameos from uh, Michael Keaton. It's got a great cameo at the end from Samuel L. Jackson. It's 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 a who's who of Hollywood A-listers from the, the late 90s and early 2000s. It's directed by Steven Soderbergh before he did the Oceans movies. This was sort of his transition from independent filmmaker to Hollywood blockbuster filmmaker. And the story is based on a book written by Elmore Leonard, who wrote, the books Get Shorty, which was turned into a movie, Jackie Brown, which was turned into a movie, and a number of other fantastic uh, books that feature, in the most part, criminals as the main character. But the dialogue of his stories, the way the stories are put together are just so intricate and interesting. And uh, this movie was actually nominated for uh, Best Adapted Screenplay. So the story itself certainly has some chops. Um, I, like I mentioned, 
there are certainly some parts where it's a little slow. I felt the movie was probably a little longer than it needed to be upon rewatch because it, it runs just over two hours. I think you probably could have trimmed 15 minutes out of this to tighten it up a bit. But you've got George Clooney before he wins his Oscar, before he does Ocean's Eleven. You've got uh, Jennifer Lopez just as she's starting to become a more credible actor and she does a great job. And like I said, you surround them with all of these fantastic character actors in the supporting roles. I like this movie a lot and I, I would highly recommend it, which is part of the, That's basically the reason I wanted you to watch it. Realistically, I'm a little worried you're not going to like it. I think you're going to find it <laughs> slow. I think maybe you're going to have a lot of questions about well, why did this person do that and not the other thing. But we can talk about those points if that is indeed your take on it. And uh, I'll turn it over to you, Chris. What are your initial thoughts on it? Okay, so let's talk about George Clooney a little bit, first of all, because I actually think he's a really good actor. And I agree. Don't forget his beginnings on the fact of facts of life. When he was on there with the long hair and the acid wash jeans, he was the handyman. Yep. Awesome. Yep. Um, and not only because he's like this good looking guy, I've always felt that he maybe has the greatest voice of all time. Agreed. He's great. My yep. goodness. He's got a great voice. Now I never watched the TV show ER. So I didn't really know all that much about him back when he was like first getting big in Hollywood. The first time I really saw him in a movie performance was in From Dust Till Dawn. He simply blew me away in that movie. He was unreal as Seth Gecko. And then he does a, this kind of blink and you'll miss him cameo in the South Park movie as a doctor. Oh, who, right. Remember he replaces Kenny's heart with the baked potato? Yeah. It never gets any easier, ever. I love that. <laughs> um, so anyway, so this movie starts out with Clooney coming out of an office. And he takes off his tie and throws it on the ground. Right? And then he robs a bank. So, and he mentions, I like how he goes up to the teller and says, my partner is the guy over there with the manager. It's not his partner. And right? he's just lying. Like you said, he robs banks without using a gun. Yeah. Um, there's right from the get-go, there's freeze frames, there's camera pans, zooms. So um, Steven Soderbergh, obviously a very stylistic director. Yeah. Another thing is you mentioned the cast that's in it and there's a, a big cast and one of the cast members that I really like, I don't think you mentioned, is Catherine Keener, who I absolutely love, by the way. I remember oh, this movie was shooting in my old neighborhood in Toronto, and people were going gaga about maybe running into Daryl Hannah. I think the movie was called The Real Blonde, if I remember correctly. And I just wanted to meet Catherine Keener, you know, because she was in it. I think she is an absolutely incredible actress, probably one of the most underrated actresses of her generation. That's what I believe. I think she's really, really good. Anyway, so Catherine Keener is in one of the first scenes in the movie because he calls her and she's smoking. And again, with the smoking, we keep talking about this in all these movies. And I think J-Lo was actually chewing Nicorette gum at one point, too. Yeah. But anyway, so then, you know, this all goes on. And then there's the, the trunk scene is pretty early. Yes. Um, and then, so they get locked in a trunk together. And that's George Clooney and J-Lo's character. And my wife turns to me and she says, this is dumb. She's like, it's like they're lying in bed together, which I think is kind of the point. Kind of the point. Yeah. yeah. They, I read actually that they... Um, that scene was the first scene that they, they shot in the movie and they had to do it like 40 times or something because the director wanted them to have that physical closeness and intimacy because they felt – he felt that if they had that from the outset, all the rest of the scenes in the movie would be that much more believable. 
Right. I like how they're talking about movies, too, in that scene, because I'm, you know, a big movie buff. They're talking about well, Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, yeah, like Faye Dunaway's movie. It's like being on a first date, right? It's, it's yeah. you're nervous, so you're talking about what you know and what you like, but not anything offensive, but something that the other person may be able to weigh in on in a way that won't upset you. Yeah. No, I like how they're older movies, like talking about like Network with Peter Finch and Three Days yep. of the Condor with Robert Redford and stuff. Um, so then the a couple things then started to kind of, make me wonder just like you mentioned and this is where i'm going to need some clarification as i usually do so j-lo seemed to be a little glammed up to be going into the prison initially don't you think um sure but i i got the sense now again gotta keep in mind this is a movie from the late 90s yeah so you don't have a lot of movies that feature a strong female lead character and when you've got george clooney's name and face on the poster Everybody else is going to be number two to him. So they needed to make sure that the character who was the female lead had a strong – like had a strong part and could be a strong woman. One of the things that I remember reading or seeing somewhere was when they talked to Elmore Leonard about the book when they were like promoting the movie, they said like, how did you come up with this idea? And he said, I remember one day I opened the newspaper and there was a picture of a woman marshal with a shotgun. And he's like – I just thought to him – he thought to himself like – this is one badass woman. And if you look at the movie poster that's actually in the IMDb, there's a picture of Jennifer Lopez with the shotgun and, uh, you know, like sort of to to reference that scene. So I think that part of the reason they had her, quote, glammed up was um, because possibly she was going to see her boyfriend. Because if you remember in the car before the prison break, she tries calling him for what seems like the second or third time. I got the impression that it was like she was planning to go see him afterwards. Um, but I think also it's just she needed to do whatever she could to get an advantage and uh, to, again, present herself in a way that that people might underestimate her. Right. So again, now, just my thoughts. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Elmore Leonard and, and a number of his books have been made into movies. This and Jackie Brown was based on Rum Punch. Yep. And things like 310 to Yuma, you know, 52 Pickup. He had a lot of movies, you know, made out of his books. And that's great. And I and I know that a lot of people believe this is one of his best if not the best movie that's been made out of any of his books um i'm going to disagree a little bit on that and the other thing i'm going to disagree with is j-lo being cast in this i think she was really miscast really yeah i did not like her in this role i thought she was the wrong actress to be in it but anyway, we'll get into that a little bit more. So, so the, the movie's going on. Hang on, wrong. let me stop you for a second. Yeah, please. So I read in the trivia that Catherine Keener was on the short list to be the lead and didn't get the role of Karen Sisko, but they right. liked her and they wanted to keep her in the movie. Do you think, not wearing the rose-colored glasses that you obviously like I Catherine know. Keener a I lot, know. do you think that this movie would have been improved with Catherine Keener in the lead? Like, I don't necessarily see her and George Clooney having the same kind of chemistry. I don't – personally, I don't think that would have worked as well. Not but, that I have anything in Catherine Keener's acting ability, right. but – I like the relationship between Lopez and Clooney. I thought it worked really well. I thought the casting was right. But do you think, in your opinion, do you think if Catherine Keener was the lead, would the movie have been better in your eyes? So interesting question, because I just mentioned that I love Catherine Keener. So, of course, I'm going to answer yes. And here's why. Again, again, not really. You don't see the chemistry between them because they don't even share screen time together. So you can't really assess the screen, the chemistry between her and Clooney. But I would say yes. And here's why. Because... Uh, I, felt, I know this is crazy and we're going to get into this, but I felt that Jennifer Lopez and George Clooney had zero chemistry 
And I know that's, oh. I know that sounds oh, crazy okay. as we get into this. I know you're not going to believe it. No one else, everyone else, I'm not, again, like every week, I'm the only one that believes, I know I'm the only one that thinks this, but I just, I didn't feel their chemistry. I felt J-Lo, I, I, I still think J-Lo cannot act. I, I didn't think she was a good actress in this. I think Catherine Keener, I, okay, this is, work with me on this. J-Lo is gorgeous. I mean, drop dead gorgeous every aspect of her is gorgeous no arguments for me no arguments but that doesn't always equate to sexy and this is supposed to be a quote-unquote sexy movie Catherine keener is not your typical gorgeous type of woman she's not your typical hollywood bombshell but she's unbelievably sexy I agree with that. Does that make and sense? She was, she was. I mean, in the movie, the scenes that Catherine Keener's in, she's wearing skin tight outfits, and like, wow, she had a great. It's body not even. This, it's like, yeah. It's not even but, that. It, it's just she has uh, something about her that's incredibly sexy, and so I would have liked to have seen her in that lead role. And you're right. She originally, I think, was cast in that role or something, or auditioned for it. But I think she would have been much better in the lead role because that lead role called for that character to have a lot going on. And J-Lo just seemed very superficial to me. So that was my thought. Um, so the guys are in prison. There's like Steve Zahn and Clooney and Ving Rhames. Yep. And they witness Don Cheadle shiv the guy yes. in the line, right? And then it goes to them cleaning up after the jailbreak. So there's this whole non-linear, you know, yes. storytelling going on again, just again, like we've talked about that recently. And then there's the bathtub scene where they're yes. like making out. And then she wakes up in the hospital. So it's like, is this just a dream or is this nonlinear yeah. again? And then, and then this is where it really got me. She's talking to the FBI agent. He's sitting at the, beside the, the hospital bed. Yeah. And then it flashes back and Steve Zahn's driving away with J-Lo and they crash and everything. And my wife turns to me and she's like, these are bad actors. And I want to know what your thoughts are on this statement, because you mentioned all these characters, great character actors. But as far as I'm concerned, I thought J-Lo was bad. I thought the FBI guy seen in that uh, was bad. Albert Brooks, who I usually love, he came off like a second-rate SNL character in the last sketch, like before 1 a.m. I I thought there were some really, really bad performances. Wow. Um, well, I mean... I, I had no problems with any of the performances. I think, again, I think my my love of the movie as a whole makes me a little blind to maybe some of the negativity or or some of the problems. I do agree that Albert Brooks was certainly subdued from his normal greatness. I don't necessarily think he was bad, but I don't think he he gave an A plus performance. But I think his performance was certainly good enough i think he was miscast uh, too i think i don't know yeah Maybe i think so me. too I, I don't necessarily think he was the right person for that but you know it's a yet another name on the poster that they can say here mm -hmm. here's yet another reason to go see this movie yeah um the uh, which reminds me that you know the movie defending your life is it defending your life yes. Albert brooks yep that, that was on a few weeks ago i hadn't seen that movie in 20 years man that's a great movie you gotta see anyway. lost in america oh my never gosh. saw it oh it's so good oh my anyway God. um Steve's on. I, I can take him or leave him. He's usually the comic relief. Uh, uh, one he always plays uh, the same type. 
always yeah, plays I, the same type of character. Yeah, uh, one of the movies that he was in that I really like is Sahara with uh, Matthew McConaughey, which I know was sort of a bomb, but I, I enjoyed that movie, and, and he was this exi- the exact same character in that movie. Um, again, he doesn't have a big part in this, so I'm not worried about it. The FBI guy, I think his performance was done deliberately. I think that it's really supposed to emphasize that he's a desk guy. He's uncomfortable out of his zone. He's inexperienced in the kind of work they've now got him in. So any, any sort of bad acting that comes off from that guy, I just, uh, sort of worked it as this is him trying to act like a guy who is in the wrong place. So I, I just felt they'd actually added to the character. So I was okay with that. I guess. Uh, so there's the clean where, or the scene where uh, Clooney beats up the guy in the prison library and the story's going back and forth between prison. And then when they're on the lamb and when they broke out of what I think was the previous time they were in prison. So again, I, I, we talked about this recently about how the nonlinear storytelling and I like it, but this one really seemed to jump around a lot for me. Um, Michael Keaton was another guy that makes an appearance. And he's wearing the FBI shirt. Yeah. And one that says undercover. Yeah. That way when uh, that. Dennis Farina says that to him was pretty yeah. cool. But he, Michael Keaton is playing the same role, Ray Nicolette, as he did in Jackie Brown. Yeah. Same character. Same they allow, character. I read that they allowed yeah. him to do it for free. Uh, because there were different production studios, so they didn't want to let him do it. And the various powers that be, uh, I think it was Tarantino uh, basically swung his big Tarantino stick and went, hey, I want you to allow him to do this. And so, yeah, he did it. So it's supposed to be the same character. He's the same name, same actor. It is supposed to be the same character. And Michael Keaton and Clooney both played Batman. That's true. Well, George Clooney had the bat nipples, though. So he had that. Um, Okay, so the... FBI goes to raid his apartment and Clooney and Rames, <clears throat> excuse me, are in the elevator. And that's when he sees JLo, but she doesn't radio up to the FBI guy. So Clooney right. knows that she likes him, I guess, you know, in that sure. scene. Yeah. And so then they go back to Detroit and Cheadle and Zahn. I, I, this, the scene, they were in the car and I missed what they were saying because my wife was complaining about how bad the movie was. And, and then she got up and she's like, I'm going to bed. I'm I'm never watching a movie for this podcast again. <laughs> so she didn't like the movie. Um, so anyway, so then they take Zahn and then they murder someone with him, right? Yeah. And then Clooney and Rames meet Cheadle in the boxing gym. And this is where the point of the movie when I thought, okay, what is the point of this movie? Like, what's the plot? Like, what's going on? And I was just like, who cares? Like, at this point, I was getting frustrated. Fair enough. I just, I don't know. I was just, I was losing interest at this point. Not just because my wife bailed on it too. I guess, I guess my feeling was there was like literally no sympathetic characters here. And I get it. It's based on the Elmore Leonard book. So they're all a bunch of shady criminals, you know? But the thing is, it works in Tarantino movies. Yeah. But but this is no Tarantino movie. No, but I don't think it's, you can definitely make that comparison, but I think this is a different kind of movie. Like, like I said at the outset, I think, the heart of this movie is really the love story that that evolves between – and I mean love – I'll use small l, uh, love – between uh, Jack Foley and Karen Sisko in that it's this Romeo and Juliet style, two people that under different circumstances might have had a fantastic life together. But based on who they are, when they meet, and the choices they've made and the career paths they have and their experience, there's no way these two are ever going to be together in any meaningful way. Yet through the course of the movie, they keep finding ways to interact with each other 
and not step on each other's toes too much. And even right at the end, you know, we'll talk about the end of the movie, I hope, in a little bit. But, uh, you know, even the end of the movie sort of leaves uh, leaves it open. It's not just, uh, OK, this is it. It was a short little fling, one time dealio and done. It's like clearly the two of them both want to be with each other and are going to try to find ways to make that work. To me, that that was sort of the heart of the movie was was the relationship between the good and the bad and, and how could you make it work if if you could make it work. I guess. Um, so the next scene, J-Lo goes to the house looking for that Snoop guy. That's Cheadle's character, right? And she yes. runs into the guy from Grey's Anatomy. He's the one yeah, that, he's uh, the one, Isaiah, yeah, he got fired for using the homophobic slur against his co-star. Yes. Remember, remember he got fired for that? Yeah, he's a jerk. Um, and then the scene in Albert Brooks's office when Clooney, I guess he finds out he's offered a job as a security guard. That's what was going on there. And See then he, that way, yeah. he, he goes out in the street, he takes off a tie and he throws it on the ground, which is the opening scene of the movie. So yeah. I'm thinking, okay, that's got to have some pretty heavy relevance to the plot damned if I could figure out what it was. Can you help me? Well, I think it was... Why would you open up the movie with that scene? It's got to be relevant. So, I mean, the the events leading up to the opening would have been he's out of prison, legitimately out of prison. Uh, He goes to see Albert Brooks's character because it's, I guess, in prison there had been some sort of an exchange where he's like, hey, when you get out of prison, come and see me and I'll hook you up. Um George Clooney's character thinks it's going to be for something really good. Albert Brooks's character is like, I'm going to give you a regular nine to five job. You demonstrate that you can hold this down. And then, yeah, I'll give you something good, but you got to earn your spot. I'm not just going to put you to the top of the ladder. George Clooney gets ticked off about it and then basically validates everything that, that Albert Brooks's character has just said about him, that he'll never be anything unless he can settle down. And what does he do in order to uh, take out his frustrations? He, he does exactly what, what, this peer of his has expected him to do. He just went across the street and robbed the bank on an impulse and unfortunately gets caught. And I think that that is the turning point where up until then Clooney's character probably had no intention of harming, uh, Albert Brooks's character, uh, or robbing him. Like it was like, well, you know, why would you, it was, it, there was no reason to do it. He's a bank robber. And, uh, uh, in light of all of this, that was sort of the the straw that broke the camel's back. And then when he ends up going back to prison, he's like, OK, you know why I went? Like, I think he blames him. He's like, you know why I went to prison this time? Because I robbed this bank. And you know why I robbed this bank? Because this guy pushed my buttons. And you know why he pushed my buttons? Because he could and I didn't like it. So I think it, it sort of sets up this idea of, well, I'm going to rob his house. I've heard that he's got these uncut diamonds that are worth millions. I might not normally be a, a house robber kind of guy, but – He's he's pushed me and I feel that I'm owed this by him because he's he's missed in his mind. He's been mistreated. So I think that was why the movie opened up that way to sort of emphasize like that's the turning point. It's that's the moment when Clooney's character sort of goes, OK, now I've got to get even now I got to prove, you know, I'm going to do something that I wouldn't normally do. And that sort of changes gears for where his story goes. So I think that's, yeah, that that helps me understand it a bit. I guess I was having trouble just kind of fitting it in to where it belonged sort of chronologically. And I kind of struggled with that. I felt, I'll be honest. I felt the acting was poor. Like I mentioned, I thought, I felt the story was a bit muddy. And again, that sort of that lack of, you know, unsympathetic characters that were there. I thought I thought the characters weren't really interesting. There's a scene with the guys in the bar, the traveling salesmen, and they all strike out with her. 
And so Clooney goes up to her. Is he supposed to be charming? Is that it? Is this supposed to be her like being attracted to him? Because I just didn't feel it. That 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 scene kind of fell flat for me. Oh, see, I, and for me, it didn't though. I I thought the opposite. I thought it worked. It was, it was everything they had previously said. Where if we were different people on a different day and we had met in a bar, it's playing out the dialogue they had previously had, and so they're trying to play out these roles. And then eventually, one of them said, I can't remember which one, sort of says like, "How long are we going to do this?" And then. They basically agree that, OK, we don't you know, are we going to do this? Yes. Let's just take a Let's take a time. I think they say a time out and let's just be two strangers that have met that find each other attractive. And let's go back to the room and let's have a night together. And and from there it, it moves on. But again, I mentioned earlier, I think this movie could have benefited from a good 15 minute trim out of it. I think that it was scene, long. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. that that scene where the guys strike out with her, that could have definitely been paired back. I think, like you said, some of the scenes with uh, with Snoopy where they go to see him after and he's in the boxing, the, the whole scene where they yeah. where the gangsters take uh, take Greg Zahn's character. Is Greg Zahn? Steve Zahn? Steve Zahn, uh, yeah. Steve Zahn's character and they basically implicate him in these murders. They're like, come with us. We're going to go and kill some guys. And basically by having him there, he's now tied to that crime with them. So there's this, you know, if if he rats on us, he's just as guilty as we are kind of thing. It's like that to me seemed a little it was an maybe in the book. There's a whole subplot about why that happened in more detail, but to me that just seemed like ten or fifteen minutes that it could have easily been cut out. Uh, now it, it it worked in the sense that Steve Zahn's character was clearly now frightened, whereas before he was like, "Hey, you know, I'm a big man. I served time in prison," and now he sees like these guys are a whole other level of criminal beyond what he was ever he was expecting to go into a, a home invasion where the guy wasn't even going to be home and rob him and like now he's implicated in this double homicide like it's clear that uh um uh, i think i think all of that part of the story could have easily been cut out i don't think it was necessary i don't think it added enough to the story to need those five minutes of screen time I, I, again if you're looking to trim 10 or 15 minutes out of the movie i would have taken all of that out yeah, and, and like you mentioned that bar scene, I was a little bit confused there too because it was jumping between the bar and the bedroom scene and I wasn't sure if that was two different times they got together or the same night because it just, it, I don't know if it was just jumping around for the sake of being stylish or yeah, I, I, mean, I don't know. I, I think it's just Soderbergh style. Again, if you've yeah. seen more of his movies, they're, they're very stylistic. Mm-hmm. He's got a certain signature, well, like I said, a certain style. Yeah. Um, the Oceans movies have it a little bit. There's a really great yeah. movie he did called The Limey with Terrence Stamp. Um, and I don't know if you've seen that one. It was a little independent movie, so you probably haven't. Uh, Terrence Stamp was, was in uh, Superman 2, though. He was Zod. Yeah. 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 And he was in Adventures of Priscilla the Desert, Queen mm-hmm. of the Desert. Yeah. Uh, but Ly- The Limey was a movie. I think it had Henry Fonda and Louise Guzman. Um, it was a Soderbergh one, too. Very stylistic. And really a lot of that same kind of like – the scene would just cut. It was almost looked like two or three seconds had been cut out and then two or three seconds. And the had been freeze cut frame. Out. Yeah. And the freeze frames yeah. and the strange music. And it's like it was very much Soderbergh artsy style. Uh, again, I thought the movie was great, but it was it's not for everyone. It's it's uh, and this movie sort of has that same um, experimentation mm-hmm. uh, by the director to shoot a movie in a certain way. And again, it's of its time, right? In the 90s, you had this this uh, rise of the independent movie. You had people making movies who didn't pre- – not that this is necessarily true of Soderbergh, but you had people who had never gone to film school, 
uh, like Quentin Tarantino always said, I didn't go to film school. I went to films. Right. And you see a lot more of that. You see people who grew up with camcorders. You see people who grew up with the, the, the home video camera who are now given million dollar budgets to shoot movies. And so you're seeing a lot of experimentation and and the story is told in a different way you're seeing this non-linear storytelling you're seeing these stylistic cuts you're seeing these shots from weird angles you're seeing these unusual music style juxtaposed against certain types of of acting scenes uh and Soderbergh certainly is at the forefront of this and certainly one of the most successful directors who's who's done this kind of thing uh I mean from this he did Oceans he did Traffic he's got a lot of huge big Oscar nominated, critically acclaimed, money making movies that have come after this, and this was sort of the stepping stone to get them there. So you see a lot of the the learnings, if you will. This one wasn't perfect, but you see a lot more of the refined style appear in some of his later movies. Which, if you are familiar with his style, you watch this and you're going to definitely go, "Oh well, of course this is Soderbergh. I can tell by this, and I can tell by that." Right. Well, it's not forever, right? Some people are going to watch it and go, I don't understand why this is being done this way. This is distracting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, like I say, it distracted me a bit when they were jumping back and forth between the bar and the bedroom. And speaking of that scene, so obviously it's a sex scene. You know, they undress and they do it, you know. But, But the thing that got me was, like, what was her motivation? for doing that. And then I realized like it was at this point it it was slow. Yeah. It, it felt boring. I don't know. And then they're superficial characters. There's I think there's a reason I don't watch movies later than 1989. This is probably exhibit A. Um so there he leaves her the gun that he took from her early in the movie and I'm thinking is this supposed to be him being like a nice guy? I don't know, man. Just it just wasn't. Well, she had already mentioned to him that it yeah. was an, it was sentimental. My dad gave it to me. Yeah, I just uh, I don't know. I, I think he'd already said previously he had established uh, he never used guns. He was a bank robber who mm-hmm. used his charisma, his charm, his wit, his his ability to weave a tale and sell a lie. He never used a gun. He never shot anybody. And then later in the movie, when he actually uses a gun, and the and Don Cheadle's character calls him on it, and he's like, "You never fired a gun before, have you?" And he says something like, "Not until recently," which by recently he means like thirty seconds ago, because until that point they have clearly established he's not a gun guy. And I think giving back the gun sort of works on two levels. It it reinforces that he doesn't need a gun for the kind of things he's trying to do. And he's giving her back the gun because she's clearly said it's a, it's an important uh, object to her, whether it was a gun or whether it was a trophy or whether it was a book or whether it was an article of clothing. I don't think it mattered what it was. I think it was just it was hers. He had taken it. She said she wanted it back and he left it for her because he's just a nice guy deep down. And why would you not leave it for her? Maybe a lot of this stuff would have played better as the book because it could have explained a lot of this stuff. Maybe that was my thing. I don't know. You mentioned the boxing match too. Um, so when she was at the boxing match, do all federal agents act alone? You know, I, mean, it's just, I thought that was weird. Yeah, um, I, I find that with a lot of movies where it's like, oh, it's I don't a plot want a thing. partner yeah. or whatever. It's like, now, is this the way it really works? Or is, now I get the impression though, Again, I don't know for certain, but I get the impression that she was there on her own dime. It didn't seem like she was there in an official capacity, which is why she was alone. Well, I guess that's that was why. Yeah, I guess that's why it sets up the next thing when Cheadle says that, you know, he's like, well, we changed the plan. We're going to go to Albert Brooks's house tonight. And Ving Rames says to Clooney, well, who's going to watch your back? And he and Clooney looks across the bar as if to insinuate that J-Lo is there and she's going to help him. 
I didn't get that. But yeah, because he sure. looked across and I thought, oh, that must be because J-Lo is there. Anyway, so anyway, so they go to the mansion, right? And they force their way in. And Nancy Allen was there. Yeah. I recognize and, her from RoboCop. And oh, was yeah. she the one in Poltergeist? Uh, no, she wasn't in Poltergeist, but she was in she like was in... 1941. And yeah, RoboCop, definitely. RoboCop, and, sure. Uh, so you think she's the maid, but I guess she's having an affair with Albert Brooks. Uh, yeah. pr- proving the age-old stereotype that even if you wear a bad toupee, women will still sleep with you if you have money or uncut diamonds in your fish tank, I guess, as it were. Sure. Um, so anyway, so they get the diamonds. They're going to leave. But Clooney wants to go back in because he thinks Cheadle and those guys are going to kill Albert Brooks. So, again, I, I feel like this is a way to try and make Clooney into the good guy is the idea. Yeah. Right? Well, not only not only kill Albert Brooks, but it seemed pretty clear that the uh, the underlying implications, they were going to rape the woman, which I, well, think, yeah, because... I think that, although it's not expressly discussed, it's sort of downplayed a bit, given the kind of nature of what this movie is. I think that that's part of the... The chivalry of, hey, there are some crimes that are just absolutely you don't let people do. And I, I think we've already established that Clooney's character, you know, is trying to be the good guy. And it's like there's no way he could have lived with himself knowing that that had happened and he could have taken steps to uh, to stop it. And that's a good point because he Clooney's character goes back in the house and Nancy Allen is in bed with the Grey's Anatomy guy. And I was thinking, like, it it was a little unclear the way they were playing that. Like, if it was consensual or was he going to rape her? You know, so again, the movie didn't make a lot of sense to me. And then even yeah, when... I don't the, think there was any consensual going on. No, no. But again, it just, the whole thing just seemed weird the way it all played out. And the fat guy falls up the stairs. Did he shoot himself in the head? Is that what happened? I yeah, think? he slipped on... Yeah. You'd, already, you'd already seen him earlier in the movie slip on the step. And so it was like, now he slipped on the step and the gun went off and he shot himself in the head. And then J-Lo shoots Clooney in the leg, puts him yeah. in the back of the paddy wagon, gives him the Zippo, and then puts him with um, Samuel L. L. Jackson. Like you mentioned, he does the cameo there. And Jackson had just escaped from, like I guess, a bunch of prisons. So I guess she wants them to talk so that Clooney can like bust out of jail again. And then they can live happily ever after or something like that. Yeah, either uh, either escape from prison or possibly even escape on the way to prison because uh, it's not, obviously they're in Detroit. They got to drive all the way to Florida. That's not something you're going to necessarily do in one long drive. There's probably going to be some stops along the way. But uh, yeah, and, and that to me was part of the the open endedness of the way the movie finished, the way the story ended is they had had this opportunity for star-crossed lovers to get together and have this, you know, this timeout. I think that's what she called it, right? The timeout, and um, and and have this moment together. And then at the end, he's like, "I'm not going back to prison," and she shoots him, and all the rest of that, sort of indicating that, okay, this is it. He's going back to jail. They're done. Mm-hmm. Like whatever fantasies you may have had, they're over. And then you find out that Samuel Jackson's character is like a master escape artist, right. and suddenly. It leaves the door open to the idea of, well, if he gets out again, she's going to come after him again. Maybe they have a time out again. Who knows? This relationship maybe isn't as over as they both would have initially thought it was. And and I like that. I like that a yeah. lot. I like the open-endedness of it. Yeah. So some trivia that I found out about this, this movie I just want to share with you. <clears throat> movie Phone did a list of the top 25 sexiest movie couples. They did it in... in uh, 2008 and they said that Cisco and Foley the two characters from this were number four on their list and also in the same year Entertainment Weekly ranked uh, um, their movie like their sexiest movies ever 
Yeah. And they found this to be number one. Wow. The number one Sorry, most sexiest. Sorry, what year did they do this survey? 2008. This is the okay, number so one sexiest movie ever made. I find that incredible. I, I, I find, I, I'm okay with that. I mean, I don't necessarily think it needs to be number one, but given what it is and given the characters and given the actors that play them, I don't have a problem with it making the top five. And I was going to say, maybe there's a lot of recency bias. Like if you said this survey was done in 1999, yeah, I'd be like, well, of course years, right? it was right after, but you're saying this is 10 years later. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that speaks to the fact that there were not a lot of great things that came in the 10 years following this, or if people genuinely just felt Clooney and Lopez had the kind of chemistry yeah. that you want. Like I felt they did. You clearly did not. No, I like entertainment weekly. I like their lists. I, but that's why I say as, as I often do on this podcast, I know I'm in the minority here, but I just didn't, I just didn't get it. But yeah. uh, anyway, that's just me. Hey, two things before yes, we move on. Absolutely. Uh, I just made a few notes from way back when we first started this. You had mentioned at the very outset of the movie, George Clooney in From Dust Till Dawn. In this movie, when they show, um, I think it's they show Karen Sisko. Uh, oh, it's in the newspaper headline where they have the pictures of all the escaped convicts. Mm -hmm. They have the mug shots of the people who escaped from the prison. And they have George Clooney's mugshot. And her father says, hey, is this the guy? And she says something like, oh, that doesn't even look like him. Apparently, that's the mugshot they used in From Dust Till Dawn. Oh, nice. And nice. so they just – they already had the movie prop and they're like, right. let's just use this. Very cool. And then another thing I want to just bring up real quick. You had talked about your uh, your love of Catherine Keener. Uh, yep. I would strongly recommend you check out the recent television show called Kidding starring Jim Carrey. Uh, Catherine Keener plays Jim Carrey's sister and the show's run two seasons. The episodes are about 30 minutes a pop. There, I think there's 10 episodes in each of the first two seasons. And the premise of Kidding is Jim Carrey basically plays like a Mr. Rogers style character who has okay. grown up on in front of the children's television his whole life and the sister does all the puppets and props and in the first episode he has a total meltdown and then it's like what happens if mr rogers had a meltdown and how would the family and all the people that run the show handle it and Catherine keener is like the emotional rock of this family and so i think uh if you like her as an actress this is her stretching her acting wings she is fantastic in this series you should check it out i think you'd really enjoy it i will definitely check it out cuz i do love her but i didn't love this movie so on that kidding. note on that note let's have some fun with caveman okay so as i mentioned earlier for whatever reason this was selected as the sexiest movie ever made apparently it's a sexy movie who knew I, like I said, I disagree. It's a sexy movie to everyone but you, buddy. Apparently. Which says a lot about what goes on in your house or doesn't. I guess. There's a lot of movies for me that fit this bill much better. And I'm going to go through some of them right now. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the year and the synopsis. Derek, all you have to do is name the film. But keep in mind, these movies are all quote unquote sexy movies. Okay, certainly, much, certainly much sexier than this mess. Okay. Okay. 1999, right in your wheelhouse. A New York doctor embarks on a harrowing, night-long odyssey of sexual and moral discovery after his wife reveals a painful secret to him. Name the film. Wow. Uh, wow. I'm, okay, I'm going to throw this out of left field. Yep. Dr. T and the women. <laughs> It is not. It is eyes wide shut. Sure it is. 
You know, zero on-screen chemistry between the leads uh, and still sucks here. Even though they were married at the time. I know. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, 2004. Los Angeles citizens with vastly separate lives collide in interweaving stories of race, loss, and redemption. Was this a Best Picture winner? It might have been. Was it Crash? It was Crash. Very good. Nice. Okay. Another sexy movie here. 1989, we're going back to. A sexually repressed woman's husband is having an affair with her sister. The arrival of a visitor with a rather unusual fetish changes everything. Wow. Was it... Okay, if it, if I'm right, it's a movie I've never seen. Is it Sex, Lies, and Videotapes? It is Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Very good. Very never good. seen it. That's a Soderbergh one, right? Mm, yes, it is. Okay, so we're going to go back into your wheelhouse. 1999. Four, teena- four teenage boys enter a pact to lose their virginity by oh, prom yes. night. Yeah, that's American Pie. It is is American Pie. Congratulations. I knew you'd do well on this. Yeah. Okay, same year, 1998-9, okay? Two vicious step-siblings of an elite Manhattan prep school make a wager to deflower the new headmaster's daughter before the start of term. Yeah, this was... um, Oh, is it Cruel Intentions? It is Cruel Intentions. Nice. Congratulations. Okay. We'll go back a year to 1998. Okay. Same year as this okay. mess that I'd watched tonight. Okay. A police detective uncovers a conspiracy behind a case involving a high school guidance counselor when accusations of rape are made against him by two female students. Uh, I don't know why, but I want to say wild things. It is Wild Things. Oh, Congratulations. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that one out of my butt. <laughs> nice. Okay, 2002, again, right in your wheelhouse, okay? All millennial stuff. A New York suburban couple's marriage goes dangerously awry when the wife indulges in an adulterous fling. That's pretty vague, Chris. Hmm. Uh, I have no idea. That's so vague, it doesn't ring any bells whatsoever. Unfaithful. Unfaithful with Diane Lane. I actually saw that in the theater. Oh, really? Oh, wow. It was good. I heard. So I oh. honestly don't remember. Okay. I'm I remember go- there was like a really erotic sex scene on a train, I think, or a yeah. subway. That's that's sort of all I remember. Okay. So I'm going to go back to some Gen X stuff now to right. really, really test All right. Her. Lay it on. All right. Some of these are pretty tough, but some of, them, eh, some of them are easy, I think. Okay. We'll start with uh, 1996. Okay. And work our way back. Corky. A tough female ex-con and her lover, Violet, concoct a scheme to steal millions of stashed mob money and pin the blame on Violet's crooked boyfriend, Caesar. Wow. That does not sound familiar, but I work at Blockbuster and I'm going to guess Bound. You would be correct. It's bad. Yes. Hold that one out. Oh my God, I'm doing good. You're doing great. Okay, 19. 19- I only remember that from the trailer. Remember I told you Blockbuster, they ran yep. the trailers yes. over, and over, over, and over, and over. That's one of the ones that was on the trailer for months. It was, Je- wasn't it like Jennifer Tilly and Joe Pantaleone was in it, right? Uh, and uh, Gina Gershon. Gina Gershon, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 1986. 
A woman becomes involved with a man she barely knows. Complications develop during their sexual escapades. Come on, that's... You gotta give me more than that. That's That could be 30 movies. I'll give you a hint, okay? Please do. Mickey Rourke. Yes, that Mickey Rourke in a sexy movie. Believe it or not. Mickey the Black Rourke. Stallion. <laughs> no, it was nine and a half weeks. Nine, <laughs> the Black Stallion. <laughs> No, I believe that I believe that was Sylvester Stallone's little known brother, Frank Stallone, in that one. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, you said Mickey Rourke. I was thinking Mickey Rooney. Mickey Rooney. <laughs> That's why I said the Black Stallion. Oh man. Okay. <laughs> the Black <laughs> Mickey Rooney. <laughs> and, and the best thing, the best thing is, is that not only would Mickey Rooney be way more sexy in that movie that his role in that movie would be a dinklage. It's a dinklage. <laughs> God. Man. All right, what's next? All right, 1982. A, a young woman's sexual awakening brings horror when she discovers her urges transform her into a monstrous black leopard. Hint, it's not the black stallion with Mickey Rooney. Well, oh man. This sort of does and does not sound familiar. Uh, I don't know. You know what? I don't know. It's Cat People with Natasha <laughs> Kinski and John Hurt. Does that have anything to do with the David Bowie song? Yes. The David Bowie song he wrote for that movie. Really? Putting, okay. out, putting out Fire with Gasoline. Yep. Okay. And uh, Giorgio Moroder did a lot of the music too. I know sure. too much about that movie. Okay. 1981. The sensuous wife of a lunch wagon proprietor and a rootless drifter begin a sordidly steamy affair and conspire to murder her Greek husband. Yeah, that doesn't sound familiar in any way whatsoever. I have no idea. The postman always rings twice. Sure. If you say he does, I believe you. Sexy movie. And probably the sexiest movie to ever come out of the 80s. The last one from 1981. Meatballs. <laughs> Very good. No, no, that was Meatballs 4 when they try and get Rudy laid. Come on, get with it. 1981, in the midst of a searing Florida heat wave, a woman persuades her lover, a small town lawyer, to murder her rich husband. Um, leaning on the language you used in the clue is the answer body heat. You leaned on it correctly. It is oh, body yeah. heat. Yes. Very good. Oh, nice. oh my God. Heard of it. Never seen it. I really tried who to punch. Who was the female lead in body heat? It was Kathleen Turner. Really? Yes. Kathleen Turner and uh, William Hurt. There you go. She nice. was like this, like massively sexy person oh, yeah. back in the 80s. And the, the voice. She And again, going back to what I said before about Catherine Keener, the thing about uh, Kathleen Turner was that she wasn't this drop-dead gorgeous Hollywood bombshell. She had unbelievable sexual appeal to her. She was sexy, yeah. you know? And she was in well, B- Body Heat is known as one of the sexiest movies ever made, right? For sure. And and Romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile have been on the TV in the last few weeks. And, like, she looked great in those two. That was her, right? Oh, yeah. She was great in those movies. And again, those movies were they great. were good. If you want to just have some fun? They were good. Romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile? Good one-two punch. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I agree. Uh, they were both really, really good. And for a sequel, Jewel and I was actually 
really, really, it packed a punch. It was good. Yeah. I liked it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we made it through um, your film. We made it through some other sexy movies. Hey, let and, me ask you, Chris. Yeah. We never got to this. Yeah. Uh, a scale of one to ten. Yes. What did you think about a site? Give me a score. Oh, man. I'm sorry. I got to do it. I'll probably give it about a five. I can accept the five. That's yeah. a pass. Yeah, I would pass. Uh, I would say for me, it's probably a seven. I, I, If you had asked me last week, I probably would have given it a seven and a half. But after watching it again this week, I do feel there were a number of scenes that could have easily been cut out to try and make the pacing a little better. But I'm going to give it a seven. And I would certainly continue to recommend it to people. I think that, uh, I think it had a, a lot of good things in it. And, uh, I mean, you, you didn't care for it so much. That's unfortunate, but, uh, I just think you're wrong. Typical, typical. Yeah. And, and the thing is like, like I fully mentioned, like I know I'm in the minority because other people liked it. You like it. And especially at, I went into this movie knowing nothing about it and which I try to do when you nominate yeah. these films, I didn't know anything about it and I didn't want to go in and find anything out about it. You know, before I went into it, I just watched it. But then afterward, when I did some research and I found out that it was like voted the sexiest movie ever made, um, I was like, what? Are you freaking kidding me? All right. Well, with that, we'll uh, we'll end the show and we'll come back next week with a top five. Right, Chris? Yeah, yeah. We'll come back with a different topic. We're not going to do a movie topic, obviously, because this is the way we do it. So we'll figure out something between now and then. We'll come back. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, if you would like to reach out to Derek on Twitter, you'll find him at Amaron underscore DM. And you'll find me at C. McBride at popgojoworld.com is, of course, our website where you can find all our contact information. Until next time, this is Chris McBrien for Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 